Most of you know uh, I've invited uh, Judah Smith, uh, Brian Smith, Brian and Becky Smith's son, uh, to speak to us this morning. And before he comes, I already told him I was going to do this, okay, so this is no surprise to him, but I wanted to take just a couple of minutes to articulate a perspective uh, regarding our support for the nation of Israel. You notice whenever that topic comes up, people get very edgy. I don't think we need to be that way, but I think we need to keep our perspective biblically grounded. And I wanted to suggest a way for us to be clear about our posture toward Israel. I've never met a believer who loves Jesus Christ who did not also love the nation of Israel. But our desire to show special love and concern toward Israel needs to be biblically and theologically driven. Paul says in Romans 9 that his great burden for, our, for his own people, the Jews, Paul was a Jew, rests in part on the fact that, and I'm quoting the scripture here, to them, to the Jewish people, belong the adoption God chose them as his people. The glory, God manifested his glory to them. The covenants, our covenants, even the new covenant, was given to the Jews. The worship, the promises, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. The Jews were not only God's chosen people in the Old Testament, Exodus 4 calls the Jewish people his firstborn son. He said to Pharaoh, you let my firstborn son go or I'm going to take your firstborn son. You read through the pages of scripture and you get the idea, however you come down politically on what's happening in Israel today, it's really important to make sure you're on the right side when it comes to Israel. God's heart is on that nation. Paul also claims in Romans 11 that we Gentile believers, which I take it that most, if not all of us, are Gentile believers this morning, are grafted into what God has done in Israel, not the other way around. And that this should not make us proud, he says in Romans 11, but it should make us sober. Furthermore, God has promised to one day restore the kingdom of Israel. I believe that's a real promise that's really going to happen where their Messiah and our Messiah will reign after a time of tribulation during which a vast number of Jewish people will come to faith in Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for these reasons and many more, we love Israel and we support Israel wherever we can. At the same time, it is not our biblical calling or responsibility to politically bring in this promised reign of the kingdom of Israel over the earth with all of its blessings, including what, what land that they're going to have. The kingdom will come in the Lord's timing and in his way as we set our hope on the Lord's soon return. Until then, there's really not a thing we can do about it. All we can do is pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our primary aim and prayer for the Jews and Palestinians alike, even Hamas, and I've heard some of you unprovoked, pray even for Hamas, that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. I think that gladdens the heart of God. We, we think some people are unsavable. We're all equally unsavable outside the grace of Christ. But our primary aim and prayer is that they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And even as Paul puts it in Romans 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. That's the bottom line. This means that when it comes to the modern political situation in Israel and the struggle between the Israelis and the Palestinians, we do not need to agree on how to solve this issue. In fact, one of the things that our trip to Israel in 2019 taught us when we talked to both Palestinians and Israelis and reflected on that is that we have very little knowledge about what's actually going on. And we have, it's very difficult for us from a far distance to even unpack some of it. And so we have to be very careful about having an opinion about the political situation. But at the same time, we should be very clear on who Hamas is ideologically. 
Hamas does not represent all Palestinians. Hamas is only a small governing faction within Palestine, and they do not speak for all Palestinians, or maybe even most Palestinians. I don't know. But as we continue to hear reports unfold of unspeakable horrors that Hamas has committed against innocent families, even against their own people, not just the Israelis, but against their own people, it is morally unconscionable to support this depth of depravity in any way. And the more we learn, the more our hearts grieve for the people who are suffering, and we cry out to God for his mercy and for his justice. I'm thankful that Judah was here one more Lord's Day because it's interesting to hear from somebody who's actually been over there, who's gotten to know the Israelis really well, who's been functioning in that country to give his perspective, who also is grounded biblically. We've been praying for Judah as he studies in Israel to become a doctor, and immediately when we heard about this attack on October 7th, we were all thinking about him, and we were wondering if he was okay. He's going to share some of his testimony with us about what God has done and is still doing in Israel and lead us in the text of Scripture to help us appreciate biblically as well as historically the present crisis. And I heard a version of this this week uh, as I listened to him, and it was really encouraging to me, and I hope it encourages your heart as well. So, Judah, are you here? All right. You come on up here and share with us. Thank, Thank you so much for being here this morning. All right, well, I really am so incredibly thankful for this opportunity. It's not what I anticipated. It's not even, and I'll be frank, not even what I wanted. I did not want to have to come back to the States. As odd as that may sound to you, (laughs) I desperately wanted to stay in Israel. Um, But the Lord has called me here. This is my third time discussing this issue, opening the word. Um, And the Lord has really been so good to me and so good to you, his people, and he is pursuing Palestinians, he is pursuing Israelis, and although it's not what I anticipated, God has put me here, and I really, I'm humbled, first of all, to be able to stand here. I'm 25 years old, I've lived in Israel for a year and a half, I study medicine there. I know many of you, and I've gotten to know many of you um, over the last few weeks. You've welcomed me into your homes, you've um, really showed me just the pure love and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to commend you and praise you for that and praise our Lord for giving you the grace and the strength to uphold me in prayer and uphold me in hospitality. Um, it's amazing and, and beautiful to think, I, and I'm I, beautiful to see. And I, uh, and I really, I'll, I have so many good things to say, and, and that's just the first one. Um, but through all the horrors that this, situation has brought, one of the first and greatest blessings is to actually see the church in action and to see the body of Christ functioning with power and with grace and with strength. Um, So, wow, it's just so incredibly encouraging. So, just a little bit more about me. I grew up here in Greenville. I went to Bob Jones Academy. I went to Bob Jones University where I graduated in 2021 with my bachelor's degree in pre-med and I am now in my second year of medical school in Israel, so this is me at my medical school, some of my friends, or in Jerusalem. Um, so really, and I, I could have a whole sermon explaining how God led me to Israel, and I, I just don't have enough time, but it was not through any conniving planning of my own. The Lord picked me up, brought me to Israel, and um, my experience in Israel has been more immersive, I think, than I even expected. First of all, the Lord called me out of my foreign country and, and brought me 7,000 miles away to this town called Beersheba, or Beersheba um, out of Greenville of the Chaldees, if you will. He led me <laughs> across the world to this desert. <laughs> Little did I know what he had in store. And then even last year for our Passover break, I, we went to Egypt with some friends. And on our exodus out of Egypt during Passover, during Easter, we ran into this storm as we were just entering the Promised Land. Um, and there was this massive river that we had to cross to get back to our homes <laughs> in Israel. <laughs> and now, now I'm in exile. So, <laughs> But if, if you know the story of Scripture, the next part's really exciting. Cyrus is going to let me go back. 
or build a temple <laughs> and think that the Messiah will come. So anyways, been more, more immersive than I, than I ever could have imagined. But and here's a picture. This is my, my class, my med school class. So I study medicine at the Medical School for International Health at Ben Gurion University, and it's based in Beersheba. Uh, in southern Israel. This, is my, this was taken our first year of medical school. So some of my best friends are just the most amazing people. And most, most of the class is Jewish. There's six of us who are born-again believers in Jesus. Um, and that's far more than usual. Uh, in upper classes, there's one or two Christians. In upper classes, there's a couple Muslim uh, students as well. And uh, as far as the whole university, Ben-Gurion University has 25,000 undergrad students. And about 30% of those are Muslim, Israeli, Arabs, and the rest are, are Jewish. And in the whole country of Israel itself, Christians make up less than 2 or maybe even less than 1% of the population. So 70% of Israel, Jewish, 30%, about 30% uh, Muslim, Arab people. So. This is my, a picture of my university, some of my professors, the dean of the school who is 92 years old, and again, some more pictures of my friends there. And then this is Beersheba, and you might know it better as Beersheba. So Abraham lived here. Uh, now I live here as well. Abraham had two sons here. Who was, does anyone know, who was Abraham's first son? Ishmael. You can yell it out. It's OK. <laughs> and who was Abraham's second son? Isaac. Yeah. So the first and oldest was named Ishmael. He was actually born out of Abraham and Sarah's unbelief. But and we, in the Bible, the narrative of the Bible moves on and obviously follows Isaac, through which God ultimately brings about the Messiah. But we forget about Ishmael. And God actually blessed Ishmael. He promised that Ishmael would be a great nation. And out of his descendants, we now have the Arab people. And so the Arab people descended from Ishmael. The Jewish people descended from Isaac, both sons of Abraham uh, and both heirs of a promise from God. And this is my house. So I live in Beersheba uh, in, the, in a neighborhood called Shkuna Gimel. Uh, and this was last Thanksgiving. So you can see I was able to host, have a lot of friends over enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday. So I miss being there this year, but it was good to be back here and, and enjoy it with, with family. And sometimes, you know, I like to go stand out in my backyard at night, stare up at the stars, and I think to myself, you know, this, this could be the place where God brought Abraham and said, look at the stars, and as numerous as the stars are, so will your descendants be. And more than that, before Abraham even left Ur, uh, he made this promise. So let's go ahead and turn to Genesis 12. In Hebrew, this, this book is called Barshit, and it means in the beginning. And as you're turning there, here's a few more pictures of my friends. A couple have been married, so I've been in their weddings in Jerusalem. and at, at circumcisions, which, by the way, are very public events and very joyful and happy events. So just like Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple eight days after his birth, they still do that. So this is eight days after my friend and his wife, they had a little son. And eight days after his birth, we went to the synagogue, the circumcision, and they declared his name for everyone. And um, what, it was just such an exciting time. And I, I know maybe you think circumcision, uh, that's probably something you should keep private. Um, and it's a, it's a difficult cultural thing to, to adjust to. But let me just tell you, it's one of the most exciting, fun, and really biblical things that you get to partner with and enjoy with your Jewish friends. It's, it's, it's really special. A few more pictures. All right. So let's go ahead and read the word of the Lord. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So how does this prophecy sit with you? 4,000-year-old recorded word of the Lord to Abraham. I think there could be a lot to say about this promise that God made to Abraham, that those who bless him will be blessed, and those who curse him will be cursed. And we could talk about that. But in fact, I think the Bible really hones in on those final in Hebrew 5 words. In you, all the families or all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. But how are Abraham's descendants doing? His two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, the Jewish people, the Arab people, have these two sons delivered God's blessing into the world? When you think of Israel, when you think of Palestine, when you think of the Middle East, do you think of blessing? Is that the first thing that comes to your mind? Do you think of peace? Do you think of the fulfillment of this word of the Lord? I would posit probably not. (laughs) I think war. I think war comes to mind. War, strife, and it's all within the same family. And it's grievous, I think. It's, it's hard. It's hard. And, and now we have this word of the Lord, which seems to be conflicted. This promise that he made that through Isaac and then Isaac's son, Jacob, whose name is Israel, that there would be blessing. And before, before we see and realize the fulfillment of this process, we, we have to dive into the valley of the shadow of death for a bit. And we have to move into an area that is dark, and we have to discuss violence, and we have to discuss war. And most recently, we have to discuss this event that happened on October 7th. So on October 7th, the last day of a seven-day feast called Sukkot, you may know it better as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, on the holiest day of that seven-day holiday called Simchat Torah, at 6.30 a.m. began the largest Mass murder of Jews since the Holocaust. So about 3,000 Hamas terrorists broke through Israeli defenses into rural southern Israel. And to help you visualize um, the geography of, of what occurred, these are the borders of Israel, generally speaking. Even these are contested. Um, but the area in light, both areas in red are what many people would consider Palestine today. Um, And the lighter red area is the West Bank, historically controlled by Jordan, now under the control of Israel. Uh, And then the area along the Mediterranean Sea, which was historically controlled by Egypt, uh, now independently governed by a government run by Hamas, Gaza. So Gaza, much smaller in area and closer to the Mediterranean Sea. So here we can zoom in on this little area, and we, we can better visualize Gaza and the events that happened on the 7th. And I don't know if you can see. Can you see Beersheba? Do I have a pointer on here? Maybe not. Beersheba is down in the bottom left, bottom, your bottom right corner. Um, so that's where I live. And actually, if you see the little crook in the V, my house is right in the V of Beersheba, if that helps you kind of visualize where I was, where I am. And the area in red is Gaza, area in white is Israel. And this blue shaded area shows you the extent of land that was invaded on October 7th by Hamas terrorists and how how close they come, how close they came. So I live about, Beersheba city limits are about 15 to 20 miles from Gaza. And then Ofakim, which is that kibbutz closest to Beersheba, is about five miles from Beersheba. And Hamas terrorists reached Ofakim. That was about the farthest it got. So, again, to give you more historical context, Gaza has been an autonomous, self-governing state since 2006 when the Palestinian people living there elected the political party Hamas to run the government in the Palestinian legislative elections of 2006. Israel has continued to provide water and electricity to the citizens of Gaza because the Hamas-led government is incompetent and unable to provide these necessities to its own citizens. And the vast majority of their budget is spent on militarization and violence rather than civilian infrastructure. 
And over the decades, this region has become isolated and radical. And it's really, it, to help you kind of contextualize, it's much like a, a closed country like North Korea or Iran. And you may ask yourself, how does this radicalization happen? And, and how can we reach these people? And how can I better understand Palestinians? And like Pastor Sykes was saying, and I so appreciate the way he said this, there has to be a clear distinction made between Hamas and the Palestinian people. Um, Hamas is a political party. It's an ideology. It's a radical, religious, Islamist, extremist group that governs the Strip of Gaza. And, you know, as an American, you wouldn't want someone from outside the United States, when they meet you, to think, you know, I'm a South Carolinian, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm this person who lives in Greenville, but they, they say, oh, you're, you're a Republican. Oh, you're a Democrat. No, you don't want to be identified by the ideology of a political party that, that governs you. And so I think that may help you understand why it's important to view Palestinians as people with individual hopes and dreams and ideas and desires as separate from Hamas, which is wicked, evil, and completely opposed to all good and all that the Lord has desired to bring into the world. So I think we must, like Pastor Steich said, we must vehemently and, and proudly oppose any attempt to equivoc equivocate or to support Hamas because there is no common ground to be had. There is no good to support in Hamas. So, and again, this helps you visualize the border fence that we have between Gaza and Israel. It's a multi-billion dollar defense system spanning the entire length of Gaza that Israel has been building for decades now. And in the aftermath of this devastation, the Israeli people are really questioning how, how is this even possible? Why did this happen? It should have, it, to me, I don't even understand how it's possible that this defense system was penetrated in so many different locations. And it, honestly, it really represents a huge failure on the part of the Israeli military to defend its people and to provide safety. And one day, hopefully, we'll be able to get to the bottom of this and, and, and figure out why it happened. Um, but for now, it's, it's hard to understand. And initially, these invaders were so successful because of a coordinated massive rocket barrage on the south in the center of Israel, one of the largest barrages we have ever endured. And I've lived through two previous rocket barrages in Beersheba, uh, one two Augusts ago, and then one back in April. And these typically, they have a lot of warning. There's something that ignites the conflict, and you see it building and it culminates in rockets being launched from Gaza into Israel. And typically, they last between three days to a week. And in Beersheba, the, in the previous times, the rocket siren sounded once to, to three times in the span of a week. But to put this attack on October 7th into perspective, in the morning alone, and in about three-hour period, our city, in our city of Beersheba, the rocket, sounded, the rocket siren sounded about 60 times excuse me, in, in just three hours. And I, so I had just returned back. I don't, I, some of you probably saw me here in, at the end of September, the first week of October, and I flew back to Israel on the 4th of October, landed in Israel on the 5th of October after visiting my family here, and was getting over jet lag, so I was tired, and the, the morning of the 7th, I was already awake because I couldn't sleep all night. And so I rolled out of bed, and I was like, I'm just going to push through this day, be tired enough to go to bed by like 9 or 10 tonight. And so I, was, I changed into my running clothes, and I was going to go on my usual run through the city before it gets warm and come back. And as I was sitting on the end of my bed, tying my shoes, my phone started to you know, light up with these notifications that we get when conflict happens. And I have it set for the whole country, so when things happen in the north or things happen in the center, I get notified even though if, if it's not directly for me. So initially I was like, oh, I must have missed something. I've been on vacation for this holiday and something must have happened and I wasn't paying attention to the news because usually we see these coming. 
And so I scrolled through my Times of Israel, the Jerusalem Post, and I was like, what's going on? And there was nothing there. And it's a holiday, and people are, are getting ready to celebrate. So I, I stepped outside into my backyard, and uh, this is what I saw. Before I knew anything was, was really seriously happening, and if, it, if you're quiet, you may be able to hear this. Maybe not. I guess we don't have we don't have audio, but off in the distance, this is looking towards Gaza from my backyard, through Beersheba off towards Gaza, and there's a, a thin wisp of black smoke that is beginning to move towards the city, and off in the distance, you can hear the impact of artillery being exchanged between Israel and Gaza, and it sounds like thunder rumbling off in the distance. And shortly after I stopped filming this, the siren went off in Beersheba. And so whenever that happens, I run to the bomb shelter across the street from me. Usually me and my landlady and my neighbors, we all pack in there and wait for it to end. So usually, you know, that happens once. You're like, okay, wait 10 minutes. And overhead, the Iron Dome will typically intercept, which is the Israeli defense system. It will intercept rockets that Hamas launches, and they'll explode in the air, and then little pieces of shrapnel will rain down. So you have to wait inside your bomb shelter for at least 10 minutes to let that shrapnel fall. And so we did that. We came out, and we're like, okay, well, that's done. Let's figure out what happened. That'll probably be the last time for today. And immediately, another siren went off. And so we turn around and go back in. And that happened all morning. And of course, it's it's terrifying. And, and uh, immediately, you know, at that point, this was by like seven in the morning. We knew something was very wrong, and I could see it in my landlady's eyes. That's and she's usually not, not really affected by this. But something was off. Something was wrong, and I didn't have my wallet on me that that morning. And I, I had to leave my house to get to the bomb shelter, and coordinate potentially with friends and try and figure out what's going on. And my my hospital badge was right by the door, so I grabbed that. And I did that because I, I knew enough from previous situations, and I knew something was really wrong and really different here. And I knew that if, for God forbid, for whatever reason, if, my, if I was killed, I needed a form of identification on me since I wouldn't be at home and needed to make sure that, that I had some way to identify me. So I had my hospital badge on me and my phone, and that was about it. Ran out the door, ran to the bomb shelter. And this was later in the morning. You can actually see the trail of a Israeli intercepting defense missile and then the plume of white smoke where it impacts the Hamas missile. And this is right over my house. And all morning, you can hear these explosions. And they, you can't really hear them in the audio, but you can feel them in your bones. So it's this vibration, this powerful vibration of, of sound and of the, the explosion of these impacting rockets overhead. And it, it shakes the windows. It shakes the floor. And, and it's terrifying. It's scary. And they were so frequent throughout that morning that it actually sounded like the 4th of July. And I was texting with my neighbor, who, who's Palestinian. He's a doctor. He works in the ER. And he was asleep after a late, uh, late night shift. And I was texting him. And I was like, hey, are you OK? Um, and he was like, what's going on? And he's like, is it for the holiday? And since he's Muslim, he, he doesn't really know what Jewish holidays are up to. And he thought they were fireworks. He was like, are they fireworks? And he was like, is it war? And I'm like, yeah, it's war. And he was like, oh, bummer. <laughs> so he, he got up and also went. But he, he was called immediately to the ER to start treating. Um, we were receiving patients from these kibbutzes. At the time, we, we didn't really know in any degree the full extent of the massacre and the slaughter that was going on. But we were getting injured people. And my hospital, Soroka, in Beersheba, was, is the main hospital for the south of Israel. And so we received all the injured people that day at my ER. And he, as a uh, doctor, needed to go there and, and treat them. So he left. And I was with my landlady, Hana. Let's see, I have a, that. This is my landlady, Hana. And this is in her living room. We had just returned from the bomb shelter after another one of these rocket brushes. And she received a call from a friend who lived closer to Gaza. And this was the first moment we learned that Hamas had actually infiltrated into the country. And she received this call saying that they were going door to door 
and actually executing people in their homes, um, outside on the street, and everything changed. Uh, this woman has lived in Israel for over 50 years. She lived in Israel during the Yom Kippur War. She's a very independent, spirited French Jewish lady who immigrated to Israel about six years ago. She's been through a lot. She's seen a lot of conflict. And she looked at me in the eyes after she hung up and she said, I have never seen anything this bad since the war of Yom Kippur, which was 50 years ago, almost to the day. And so that's when I knew things were very wrong. And so instead of going to the bomb shelter, we realized in the bomb shelter, there is no lock on the door. And you may have heard this through the news. And you can actually get trapped in the bomb shelter because they're meant to defend against missiles. They're not meant to defend against armed gunmen. And so in, in our house, in her house, we were able to lock the door. We closed blinds, turned off the lights in the front of the house, and hid in her living room for about three hours. And at the time, we didn't know the extent to which the terrorists had invaded. And even at the time, at worst case scenario, I was like, oh no, there's a dozen or, or two dozen terrorists that made it into the country. Um, nothing like this has ever happened. This is really unusual. And it was, it was scary. And the local news at the time was saying they may have even made it into Beersheba. And there was reports of shooting in the neighborhood close to us. So we very well thought they could come to our, our house. And so we were scared. But it was a good time. I got to talk to Hana about all her experience with Yom Kippur, her husband who served in the war. And I've been witnessing to this lady for a year and a half now, sharing the gospel, and just able to actually read Psalm 23 and just meditate on the goodness of God as our shepherd as rockets explode overhead. I tell you, you won't read Psalm 23 <laughs> the same way. And, and even today, reading through it, and also Psalm 46, um, just tearing up actually as, as we were reading it earlier, because immediately that brings back the, the sounds and the, the, the smells of that context. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but actually the word of God transforms those horrible sensations into something beautiful and something really good. And, and I will get to that, but we do have to keep talking about some negative things. Uh, anyways, so I was with my landlady, and then the next day, I was able to get across town to visit with my friends, and we decided it was the right thing to do. So we found a flight after three hours of searching. We were able to get a flight to Cyprus, where I have friends. And we stayed in Cyprus for about a month, and then finally made the decision to come back here for Thanksgiving. And then hopefully, over the next month, we'll, we're all going to start trickling back to Israel as we start in-person class again in January. So about seven of my friends there, we, we made it into Cyprus late at night. We rolled up, and we just hugged, cried, <laughs> and we sang. Well, we read Psalm 46, and then we sang together, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and, and which, if you know, is based on Psalm 46. Martin Luther wrote it based on Psalm 46. And that has been such a blessing and such an encouragement to be with other believers, other believers who study medicine with me, and to have that whole month to readjust. We started school again the next week online. And I'm thankful for that, that buffer time because it, it wouldn't have been good for me to come back to the States yet. There was still, it was important to process those events with my friends who had experienced it with me and to really dive into the word and to pray and to seek the face of God with people who knew exactly how we, people that shared the emotions and the experience. And God has been so good through all of that. And I could keep talking about that experience and how healing it was, but I do have to move on. And actually, I encourage you, if you have time later, go to this website, october7thmap.com, oct7map.com. And it really, it well lays out a visual representation of the massacres that occurred on this day. And it does so really tastefully, really honors the memory and the legacy of these people. So every red dot represents someone who was killed, and every black dot represents someone who was taken hostage. And as you can see, you can move through each of these kibbutzim and, and see the impact that this massacre had on these families. You can see their name, and actually if you click on a dot, it'll pull up their picture, maybe a little information about them, and you can see 
And especially for those who are still being held hostage, these black dots, I really encourage you, this has been really helpful for me, to go through and pray for those people by name. They're still alive, as far as we know. They're being held in a horrible situation. Um, and the Lord can break through and one, he can deliver them out of this immediate physical danger. But two, I encourage you to ultimately pray for their salvation. These are old people, young people, little children. And the Lord can do good things in the midst of this horrible situation. And so, like I said, you can click on uh, pictures, see a little bit about them. Oftentimes, you'll see whole families grouped together in their house. And, and they're able to pinpoint these locations based on cell phone locations or actually bodies recovered um, and they're able to, to put it all on the map. And they add to it every day. They're able to identify a new body or pinpoint a, a cell phone location. So, and actually, and this, this really represents the lowest point of this situation and it's hard for me to even express, but last Tuesday I joined a virtual meeting with my school along with other Israeli medical schools and law schools throughout the country. And around 2,300 legal and medical professionals and students joined the call. A delegate from Harvard University Medical School moderated as forensic evidence and eyewitness testimony of rape and unspeakable acts of gender-based violence from October 7th were presented to us. And that's really all I can say. It would be, in fact, evil, I think, and unimaginable for me to even try to articulate the despicable acts that I witnessed committed against innocent women, men, children, the elderly, and even infants. And like I said, this represents probably the lowest, deepest pit of sin and death I have certainly ever witnessed. And I hope I will never witness it again or witness anything worse. But we are, as the Bible describes, we are desperately wicked. And again, to bring us back to that distinction I made between Palestinians, Hamas, Israelis, Palestinians are sinners. Israelis are sinners. You are a sinner in need of grace, and your heart is desperately wicked. If you don't realize that about yourself, I, I'm the first to stand up here with Paul and say, I am the worst of sinners. And that is, that is an honest look at my heart, and that is an honest look at the world. And, and Paul is exactly right, and I, I echo that. And if you don't feel that way, if you haven't delved into the depths of your heart to see that you are how the Bible describes, I encourage you to take some time and to do that. Now, at this point, 12,000 Palestinians, well, actually, as of today, I think it's closer to 20,000 Palestinians have been killed. And 1,200 Israelis have been killed. Many at the hands and design of Hamas. Many Palestinians at the hands and designs of Hamas. And many others in the crossfire of Israeli missile strikes. So I would like to ask you, how does the Bible inform or even transform our thinking about this situation. Does it support Israel? Does it support Palestine? Is God being glorified? How is God being glorified? Does it have answers? Is it even appropriate? Is it even relevant? Maybe, maybe it's tasteless to try and, and bring religion into this. Maybe it's inappropriate. Well, I can tell you I have no words. My heart and my soul fail me utterly. I don't know how to think. I hardly know how to act. And I, I, I myself am full of questions without answers. And every day, I think I've cried every day since October 7th. I'm not ashamed to admit that. Um, this has impacted me deeply and, and personally. And I think anyone who lives in Israel has had a similar experience. How could this happen? How, if God is loving, if God is merciful, if God is gracious, like he says, how could this happen? So there's a book in the Bible that we call Lamentations. In Hebrew, it's a much more profound name, I think. 
In Hebrew, this book is called Echa, which means how. And like I said, my words fail me, but God does not. And God has provided in Echa, in Lamentations, an inspired call, an inspired prayer of grief. And, you know, we don't often read this book. Perhaps we should more often. Maybe we don't have good reason to. But if ever there was a time to lament, if ever there was a time to bring petitions and questions before God, it is now. As a body of Christ, as those who love the Israeli people, as those who love the Middle East, who love Palestine, it's okay to ask questions of God. He is not afraid of your questions. He is not offended that you would be perplexed. He's not insecure in his wisdom. He's not, he's not made a liar by our experience. We must take our experience to God himself, and he will answer us. But first, let's actually, and I really encourage you to do this with me, let's pray these words of lamentations. They were written by Jeremiah around 2,500 years ago. And the context of this is Nebuchadnezzar's genocide and displacement of the kingdom of Judah, the Jewish people, and the destruction and utter desolation of Jerusalem and the land of Judah. And again, I found this to be so profoundly helpful. These word, these, this passage puts words to emotions that I can hardly articulate. So you can keep your eyes open, you can follow along, but this is a prayer, and I want us to pray together, and you can add your own words, you can add your own context as you commune with God. This is a perfect template, a perfectly inspired template, and it expresses our grief and our pain. So Lamentations 5. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned, and they are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our heads. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this is our heart. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which now lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But Lord, you reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This is our heart cry to the Lord. This is a deep, Shout a deep cry of anguish and suffering. 
But God made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise to his people Israel. He made a promise to Ishmael. He will not be made a liar. He made a promise that all nations of the world would be blessed. He will not remain silent and he will not remain far from those who seek his face. He is near to the brokenhearted. And if you are brokenhearted, he is about to answer you. He will not be silent. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Do you doubt that? Perhaps, perhaps your own personal situation is far from the land of Israel. Perhaps you are dealing with disease, a death, a broken relationship, just pain and suffering. And your own pain and suffering is, is far more imminent and far more personal than the suffering of people 7,000 miles away, and I understand that. But is this prayer, is this state of Israel that we see in Lamentations, is that not the state of a heart without the Messiah? Is that not the state of your own heart before you were saved, ravaged, pillaged, violated, and desolate? Pursuing after necessities, after needs, finding them unmet time after time. That's, that was true of me before I met Jesus. That's true of me when I turn my eyes from him. I'm dry and I'm broken. That's true of everyone I think I've met who does not know Jesus. As, as joyful as an exterior they may present, but deep underside there's great dryness, great brokenness. And the world will always return to this cycle of violence, destruction, sexual deviation, and violence over and over, and we will suffer. We will suffer because of the choice we have made to taste of sin and to indulge in it. And this is what God sees when he looks at the world, and it, is, it helps us understand why he is both grieved and full of wrath, full of anger at the sin and the death that is reigning in the world. And it's because we have chosen that. We have chosen it. So we have set our part. This is our response. This is our cry. But now we must do what the psalmist says in Psalm 146. We must be still. We must be silent. And we must let God speak. And what he's about to say changes everything. So let's turn to Isaiah 40. 1 through 5 and then verse 9 through 11. In Hebrew... This book is called Yeshayahu, which means Yahweh is salvation. So before we even read, there's hope. Yeshayahu, there is salvation. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned. How is that possible? How is her iniquity pardoned? What has she done to do that? She does not deserve to be forgiven. We do not deserve to be forgiven. How is God going to do that? That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. And every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm, and he will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those that are with young. Is this reminding you of someone you know? This was written 500 years before Jesus, at least. There is great evil in the world, 
It seems that evil has the upper hand. But God promised a blessing through Abraham to all nations. And a shepherd is coming. A shepherd is coming. And this is a radical new concept. And do you pick up on what is being alluded to? To a Jewish audience, this is profound. This is totally new. And let's keep reading in the prophet Isaiah, in the prophet Yeshayahu. Isaiah 60, 1 through 3, 18 through 19. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations will come to your light, all the nations, all the families of the world, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Violence, which by the way in Hebrew is Hamas, Hamas, or violence, shall no longer be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders, you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Something is coming. Someone is coming, and something else is being alluded to. And Lord, we want to see you. We want to see your glory. Israel wants to see your glory. When will these things come to pass? And I don't have this up here, but just quickly, Luke 2, 9 through 10. And the angel of the Lord appeared to shepherds, to them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Is God fulfilling his promise? Is God being glorified in the war between Israel and Hamas? Is God being glorified in the Middle East? God has been being glorified from eternity past, and he will continue to be glorified for eternity to come. But... He was glorified, and he has been glorified in the form of his Messiah, Jesus the Christ, since the day he was born in Bethlehem. And the glory of the Lord has shone upon his people ever since. And the word he spoke to Abraham and the word he spoke through Isaiah the prophet has come to pass. The Lord will be your glory, and the Lord will be your light, and he will shine upon you. And be not afraid. Be filled with joy. And this isn't just for Israel. This is not just for the descendants of Abraham. It is for all people. So let's turn to John 1. Let's meet this shepherd. Let's meet this great Messiah. John 1, 1 through 5, 9 through, 19, uh, 9 through 14. And in Hebrew, John is a Hebrew name. It's, it's called Yohanan, which means Yahweh has been gracious. In the beginning, Barashit, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, all the nations of the world, all the descendants of Abraham, all the descendants of Isaac, all the descendants of Ishmael, he gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, 
the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Through Jesus, we have the right to become sons of God. Through Jesus, we have received grace upon grace upon grace. There is no other hope. And I think back Friday, many of you may have been watching this, the release of hostages out of Gaza into Israel. And all day, it was touch and go whether that would even happen. Um, but late in the afternoon, late at night in Israel, out of the darkness comes these headlights. And passing in front of the camera come five to six white jeeps with a red cross painted on their side, and above them waving this flag with a red cross. The wind catches it, and they whip in the, in the breeze. And these, these jeeps are approaching the border between Gaza and, and Egypt. And normally, there's quite an extensive process you have to go through to, to cross that very secure border. These jeeps hardly slow at all. They move on, and ignoring the cheers and the cries of journalists lining the border, they move on through the night into freedom. And I'm not going to try to make a lot out of that analogy, but I, th I thought to myself as I was watching that, is that not a picture of Christ who has sacked sin and death, brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his dear son? And he has taken us from our state of depravity, from our state of lamentation into glory into goodness. And he's doing this all over the world. He's doing this in the Middle East, if you can believe it. I've actually seen this with my own eyes. I've seen Palestinians who have come to know Jesus, and the first thing they want to do is preach the gospel to their Jewish friends. I've seen Jewish people who have come to know Jesus, and the first thing they want to do is preach the gospel to their Palestinian neighbors. That is a miracle. That is a miracle. And the church in Israel, and the church in the Middle East, is full of the grace and truth of the Lord. And it is doing amazing things by his grace and by his power. I was in Turkey for most of the summer. And I was able to talk with a, a young girl who, she's just a year older than me, actually, so not a, not a girl, but a young lady, who a Syrian descent, a Syrian refugee moved to Turkey. And she has recently become saved, or she is very close to accepting Jesus. It's very hard for a Muslim woman, especially to, who still lives at home, especially to, to make a public profession of faith, but she loves Jesus, and she's so close to accepting him. But one of the things that changed in her heart was she wanted to read the scripture. She's studied the Quran all her life, and now she wants to read the scripture. And she wanted to read it in Hebrew, which... The thought, and again, if, if you haven't lived over there, the thought of a Muslim person wanting to read Hebrew, the language of the Jewish people, is profoundly, it speaks to a heart change that, that no political movement, no power on earth could ever change. And this girl expressed her love for the Jewish people in a curiosity that came from a genuine place of love rather than academic or superficial interest. And I've seen that time and time again. I even know of a couple that lives in Nazareth. Um, they're married. Uh, he, the husband, is Jewish, and his wife is Palestinian. And they both know Jesus. And of course, that marriage is very rare, and it's only possible because of the grace of Jesus. So if you want to give hope to the world, if you want peace to come to Israel, the only answer is Jesus. It really is. You must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not a Greenville, South Carolina phenomenon. He's not a Bob Jones University phenomenon. Jesus is shattering the power of sin and death all across the globe. And he's the same Jesus you know. And he's the same answer to every problem, I promise you. I speak as someone who has witnessed this and to whom God has been so gracious to show this good news. 
And I often tell people it's like Narnia, if you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The Middle East is so much like Narnia, bound in this frozen, crystallized, stony state. There's this great power of Islam and of Judaism that is like a spell that sits heavy on the people that live there. And they are religious. They love God. They have a concept of, of spirituality and of holiness. But they're utterly petrified. And they're not free. But the minute that they repent and believe, the minute that God himself breathes on them like he breathed into Adam, they become alive. And the stone that they were wrapped up in, the false belief, the false narrative, the great counterfeit gospel of Islam, cracks and melts and falls off. And true humanity, true grace-filled living begins. And it's amazing to watch and it's amazing to see. And that can happen in Greenville. That can happen in Traveler's Rest at Gateway. That can happen to you. And if it hasn't happened to you, Oh, you're missing out. And if you haven't seen it in other people's lives, you're missing out. You must repent and believe on Jesus. He is the answer. And that's not to say that all things will be made right immediately. But they will be made right. And they will be made perfect. And, and that's our last passage today. So Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Also in Hebrew, this is called Hitgalut, and I know the New Testament was written in Greek, um, but it's a Hebrew translation. Hitgalut just means an uncovering, or revelation, literally. <coughs> so then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, and through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and the night will be no more. They will have no need of lamp or sun, the light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's the promise that Isaiah, through the inspiration of God, told us. You know, And this is the promise that God has made to us. We will see the world restored. We will see the nations healed. There is so much hope. You will see the face of your Redeemer. So there is an answer to evil. There is a solution to the greatest wickedness and depravity that rises out of the hearts of men and women. Jews or Muslims do not have a different path to eternal life. And how will they know unless someone tells them? Unless there is a preacher and a teacher Jesus is the only means by which men, women, and children are saved. He is the same and the only solution for Beersheba, for Gaza, for Greenville. And all authority has been given to him on heaven and in earth. And where his name goes forth, deserts bloom into gardens. Like I've said, I've seen this over and over. And the power that Islam and Judaism and sin and death themselves have are fracturing and breaking and melting under the weight of his glory, full of grace and truth. And I want to end with these words from John that Jesus spoke over 2,000 years ago. John 7, 38 through 39. On the last day of the feast, called Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day, Simchat Torah, October 7th, 2,000 years ago, 30 A.D., Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
So when Christ returns, there will be that river whose, whose streams make glad the city of God. It will flow from the Lamb and from the Father who reigned in the middle of that city. But Jesus is telling you there is a foretaste of that to be had right now. There is a river, and it will flow from your own heart. And it is for the healing of the nations, and it is for the blessing of all peoples through Abraham's son and Abraham's Lord, Jesus the Messiah. So do not neglect this great hope and this great salvation that you have for all peoples. Tidings of great joy for all peoples. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing all people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, he is with you even to the end of the age. So I hope this has been helpful. I know it's long, and I know it's emotional, but I hope it has been helpful, and I hope it conveys the true glory that the Lord has revealed in the situation in this war. It's the same glory that he has been showing from eternity past, and it is glory that you have access to in your own soul. If you are a believer, the Lord dwells in you, and you have a hope to share. So do not neglect that hope. And I say that humbly. I say that as a failed human being um, who has not done this perfectly. But if you would allow me to let me encourage you to look at the word of God and to listen to his word and his commandment to go and preach the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.